We now move on to episode three of our History of LGBT Spaces in London podcast series. In the previous episode, UCEM's Digital Communications Officer, Eliza White, shared her research on the role of Vauxhall in London's LGBT history, and our second case study concerns perhaps a more well-known location in Soho. So first off, there is this perception that Soho can be sometimes seen as seedy. Is that the case? So it certainly has that reputation, and that may have been the case some years ago. Um, But now I think it has a much more tourist-friendly sheen to it. Um, I mean, certainly back in the 19th century, it was quite destitute with a lot of overcrowding. It's been quite a hotspot for sex work as well um, in more recent years. But yes, as I say, nowadays, I, I really don't think so. I think it's I think it has been gentrified to be to welcome tourists. OK. And what role has Soho played for the LGBTQ plus community in London? So um, it was regenerated into an entertainment district at the, at the end of the 19th century. And this is when it kind of carved out its identity as a popular destination for sex work. And there are reports in this at this time of an all-male brothel operating in the area. And then in the 20s, the 1920s, I should say, a right-wing publication called John Bull exposed six notorious places known as bogus hotels, So these were spaces where queer men could meet one another. Um, They weren't actually hotels. And Simon Avery sees Soho as a space focusing on queer visibility and the fostering of a safe space in the centre of the capital. However, this visibility can provide a target for attacks, homophobic and transphobic attacks. And one such example of this is in 1999, when the Admiral Duncan pub was subject to a nail bomb attack from a neo-Nazi. It killed three and injured many more. So it was a really shocking and really violent attack. Yeah, I mean, very, very shocking, that that sort of thing. And, and, and also, you can understand why that might act as a deterrent to, to going to, to these places, which, which are well known, mm. which is, is very sad and not really what, what Soho should be about. It should be a place for celebration and for people to, to feel completely comfortable within themselves. Do you think there still is this violent kind of undertone, perhaps, with Soho? less so these days I think it's I think it's more a place of of revelry so I I don't think this it's quite so bad anymore but Mm. it can still happen yeah well yeah isolated attacks this this sort of thing so uh, yeah hopefully that would be the last that there would ever be for for such a reason Um, but there are still hateful people around and what venues in Soho are noteworthy in terms of LGBTQ plus history? So Soho's queer spaces have long been concentrated on Old Compton Street. So that area was known particularly as an artistic and bohemian space. So one such example of a, of a queer space that fits this, um, this aesthetic is the Caravan Club from the 1930s. And it was described as London's greatest bohemian rendezvous, but it was under constant police surveillance and subject to many raids. These days, you can expect to enjoy a drink in Comptons of Soho, G.A.Y. and Heaven, to name just a few. Bars catering to queer women have included Shebar, Bar Titania and Muse, with only Shebar remaining. However, the number of queer venues really came to its peak in the 1980s. Um, and this is when Heaven, Comptons and The Village, to name a few, all opened. 
So I'm intrigued by the 1980s there. What, what sparked the rebirth of the area in that decade? So I couldn't find much on any on reasons why during my research. I would I think from my own perspective, I would posit that much of the boom in com- commercial LGBTQ plus spaces can be attributed to the wider visibility of queer people. And this would have started in the 1970s with the first Pride marches. So the first Pride march was in 1972 in London. The first one in London, I should say. I mean, yeah, they were already happening in New York um, in the US. And I think this really helped to embolden a lot of queer people, understanding that they weren't, you know, the only ones in their own communities. I do think much of this boom in new queer clubs, bars and pubs was potentially in spite of the challenges at this time. Met police were cracking down on sex work and obscenity in the area. So you could point to the fact that people were rebelling against this homophobia which which was perhaps rife at the time i think so and i think with the with the police coming in and shutting down a lot of the the sex shops in particular and Mm. the brothels it meant that there was empty space for um queer clubs and bars to move in well yeah so so courageous basically to to still be doing that despite you know, these these forces clamping down with with that homophobia behind them. I think so. I think with Section 28, it really just made a lot of people really defiant about mm. who they are, which is a really good way. And it, it, it is seen sometimes as a form of protest in just being who you are, you know, whether it's, you know, walking down the street in clothes that don't look like your your assigned gender birth or um you know walking down the street holding your partner of the same gender's hand that kind of thing that's that's still a form of protest in a lot of ways mm. and 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 also you know when we talked about the 1980s and in, in the previous episode you know, you did touch upon aids uh, epidemic at the time and and so that also was was framed in the the wider sort of homophobic commentary and politically, there was it was the Thatcher administration, which you referred to as Section Twenty Eight as well. So, I mean, my head is going to, towards that film Pride, yes. uh, which is which is a the combined forces of the LGBTQ plus community with mm. the minors, and and all sort of you know you mentioned protest as well. That that really sort of comes out of of what you're saying, and this defiance in a, in a very politically charged and, and slightly violent climate as well. So yeah, that that's it's interesting to look back, and, and obviously that's what we're doing as a, as a main focus throughout this series, and then we're we're sort of bringing it into the present day. So would you say is Soho still as vibrant as it was in its heyday, or is it less popular? So a lot of spaces from the boom in the eight, well, I say a lot of some of the spaces from the boom in the nineteen eighties have endured, but many of these have also disappeared. These days, much of the area is taken up with media offices and high-end restaurants because they really bring in the the money to the economy in the area. But if you want a real taste of Soho at its peak, I would definitely recommend checking out London Pride. The streets in Soho really do come alive and it's just something amazing to experience. So that, that's a, a way of retaining its history and, and its place in, in this era of, of its heyday and the defiance and yeah that vibrant scene when when the the rebirth of the area was was sparked in the 1980s and yeah certainly good that it's retained in in such a way even though some of the physical spaces are now being lost perhaps for other reasons but certainly something we will continue to look at during the remaining part of the series so 
We were hoping to record an interview segment for this episode, but no one was available in the time period, unfortunately. What we did learn, Eliza, though, was that independent LGBTQ plus venues in Soho are few and far between, with the vast majority owned by the UK's largest pub company, Stonegate Group. So what conclusions, if any, do you draw from that? So I find it really surprising that we couldn't find anyone to talk to us. But I do think it is really interesting that so many of the venues are owned by a large large pub company. I think that maybe this is a sign of the challenging environment in which these venues currently exist. And I guess it shows how unfeasible it is to be an independent business with such a specific customer base in central London. Yeah, it was was referred to by James Lindsay in, in, in episode two that a lot of venues go to be owned by by large companies it's one of the f- one of the ways you can continue to exist in the same way and obviously the recurring theme is that it's a challenging environment to be running a venue in london at the moment so do you think soho will continue to play a central role for the lgbtq plus community in london well i certainly hope so i think for me part of I mean, one aspect of the enjoyment in going to Soho is knowing just how long queer spaces have existed in that place. So for me, part part of it is that being surrounded by that heritage is, is important for me. But one thing I think will endure, you know, in spite of any uncertainty of the future of many of these venues, is celebrating pride on the streets. I think that I think that that will still be ongoing for some time. And and yeah, that that's what you were mentioning before in terms of if you want to get a real feel for that community that is the day to go and and experience that in Soho where you know it has been such a big part uh, of of the development of the LGBTQ plus community in London so three episodes down and one to go what what awaits us in episode four in our next episode I'll go into more detail on the challenges that face queer spaces today Fantastic and very much looking forward to it. So great to learn more about Soho in relation to LGBT plus history month. It's somewhere you often hear referred to but I knew little about it so it was really valuable to listen to what you've picked up from your research Eliza. So thanks for sharing. Thank you for having me. To keep up to date with the series either follow us on whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on or keep an eye out for updates on our Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook channels. Thanks for listening.